Now we're going to read from God's word. Uh, We'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. As you're turning to that, I just want to give you a, a, um, uh, just a brief uh, introduction for something that we're going to try tonight. Um, As as you probably know, uh, we meet here for our services, but we also uh, have, uh, for the past three, three and a half years, also maintained a way for people to join us over Zoom. Uh, We have a, a number of people that are um, joining over Zoom to, to worship with us. Um, a lot of them have just their situations where that's the only way they can connect. Um, and so we're glad that we can be connected. But we, we've always been trying to um, increase, improve the, the spiritual union that we have with each other as we're meeting here to worship, but also as some are joining over Zoom. One small way that we're going to try to uh, keep us all connected to, to improve and strengthen the unity of the body uh, of Christ is um, during communion. And so this will be tonight. We're going to try this. Maybe it won't work. Um, but um, when, we, when we serve communion, we, we all come up uh, to get the bread and the wine. And at that time, we actually see each other. Like I think most of you, from what I can tell, you're not looking around the room the whole time that we're worshiping. And that's good. That's fine. But when we get up, it's actually fine. We're, we're coming to a table that we're all eating together from. And so it's actually perfectly appropriate when we're having communion here that you are noticing, who am I with? Who is at the table with me? And so what we'll try to do tonight is... Um, as we're coming up to receive the bread and the wine, we'll also just put up onto the um, projection just the names of the people that are on Zoom. So those of you who are on Zoom, just giving you a heads up so you're not shocked, um, but also letting you all know what we're doing, why we're doing it. It's wonderful that we can all be here together. It's wonderful that others can join us over Zoom. There are probably at this moment 15 households that are connected on Zoom right now in addition to those of you who are here. So we want to do everything to worship in spirit and in truth. So that's something that we're going to try tonight. All right. Thank you for bearing with uh, that wordy explanation. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness." This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning I have two questions for you. I'm going to start with two questions. First of all, 
does anything about you need to change? Does anything about you need to change? And the second question, has anything about you changed? Does anything about you need to change? Has anything about you changed? Now, at the beginning of a new calendar year, January 1st, that's the time for New Year's resolutions for some people. And and maybe those are times when you reflected on and you considered changes, changes in your practice, changes in the habits that you've picked up that you want to cast off, changes maybe in the company that you keep. Maybe for you, though, the fall is the time of changes. The fall begins, a new school year, a new season, and you've determined that as the fall begins, as the new season starts, you're going to improve things from last year. Now, I'm not asking about superficial changes. I'm not talking about being more organized with your your, your calendar. I'm not talking about superficial changes like getting more exercise, eating more healthy. Those are all fine, but I'm talking about deeper things than that. For instance, our are you a worried, a fearful person? And, and it's so bad that it eats you up. You know that your anxiety, it, it needs to change. Or, or maybe it's stealing. Maybe you steal. Maybe you steal honest labor from your employer. Maybe you steal property from others. Or maybe you need to change this way. Maybe you're, you're withdrawn. You're overly withdrawn, and, and you realize, as you, as you look at the canvas of your life, you realize that your relationships, there are only a few of them, and they're all shallow. The, these questions drive at our private lives, at the, the secret life within us that no one else may see. It, it could even be things like your, your online browsing habits, what you look at on your screens. It, it could be your, your devotion to substance or to food, and, and you have an unhealthy devotion to substance or, or to food. Or maybe it's just the enemy list that you keep in your heart. So two questions. Does anything about you need to change? And has anything about you changed? Our text this morning brings up three things. First of all, it, it talks about the need for a new self. The need for a new self. And then secondly, the despair about our old self. The need for a new self, the despair about our old self, and then thirdly, what will drive away despair. Let's start with the need for the new self, a better self. And, and this passage starts by insulting everyone, insulting every human being. It says, it says something is wrong with us. Something is wrong with all of us. Now, sometimes we agree with that claim. Because when we look around, and we look around at the crazy that's going on in the world outside, and we look at everyone around us, we say, those people, those people are nuts. Something is wrong with those people. And then sometimes we also, we take an honest look at ourselves. And we're deeply dissatisfied about ourselves. And we say, something is wrong with me. This can begin even if you're just a kid. Maybe when you're, you're a kid, but even you have times where your conscience is loud and your conscience is accusing you. You may be alone and quiet, or you may just be mindlessly practicing your instrument, and it comes back to you. Your conscience is talking to you. The lie that you told your mom, the lie you told your mom about doing your homework, 
the lie you told about doing your chores, you haven't admitted the truth to her yet. You haven't made things right with her, and, and your conscience is gnawing at you. The guilt, that guilt is telling you something is wrong with you. Maybe, maybe for you, though, it, it's something more, more like this. You, you realize that you have a desperate need for affirmation. Not, not just that you enjoy praise. That's healthy. That's not wrong in and of itself. But you've got a, you have got a desperate need to be affirmed so much that what people say about you, what people think about you, what you imagine that they're thinking about you, you can tell it matters way too much. Way too much. And, and you've got a sense that, that inside you, you've got this grasping neediness, neediness to be praised, neediness to be embraced. You're just desperate for compliments. Or the flip side of it is you, you distance yourselves from people. You distance yourself from people just out of, a, out of self-protection because they won't be able to feed into your need. And, and you just hate that weakness about yourself. You sense it. And you hate that about yourself. All this, this is, this is something that afflicts both Christians and non-Christians. We're not saying it's all them. It's not us. This is something that afflicts Christians and non-Christians. The text is addressed to Christians. Christians can struggle with self-preoccupation. Christians can struggle with self-loathing. Now, we're looking at the, this experienced sense that you need a new self. The passage breaks into two sections. Verses 17 through 19, they speak about putting off the old self, this old self you want to be done with. And then verses 20 through 24, it speaks about putting on the new self, the old self and then this new self. Let's look at each of those. We'll start with the old self that we must put off, verses 17 through 19. Do you consider yourself to be a Christian? Is that how you would identify yourself? If so, this passage puts an emphatic obligation on you. Verse 17, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. What he's saying is, he's saying, stop walking like a Gentile. And, and, and that word Gentile, in some ways it's a, it's a technical term, for those of us living in 2023, Gentile is code for the old self. Gentile is code for your old self. Verse 22 reinforces this emphatic call to change. He says, put off concerning your former conduct, the old self. So if you call yourself a Christian, this is not an option. Verse 17, Paul uses four verbal prods to say that this is not a suggestion. This is an obligation if you're a Christian. Verse 17, he says, this I say. Those are words of emphasis. They're, 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 they're meant to heighten your attention to what he's about to say. Another verbal prod, the second verbal prod, verse 17, he says, this I say and testify. Martyromai. He's, he's using solemn courtroom terminology. He's saying this is serious. It's serious the way when the person speaks in court, everyone takes it seriously. And so he, he says, this I say, he says, this I testify about, and then a third verbal prod. Verse 17, he says, this I say and testify in the Lord. So this is not your dad speaking. This isn't your boss speaking. This is from the Lord. This is from God. And then 
this fourth verbal prod about what he's, he's saying. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. You must not walk in the old self. So do you consider yourself to be a Christian? Is that how you self-identify? Well, a Christian is someone who is saved by grace. You can do nothing. You can do nothing to be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ reconciled you to God by his self-sacrifice, by his meritorious record. A Christian is saved by Christ. But a Christian then follows Christ. They're together. They're always together. Isn't that what Jesus was constantly calling people into? He would say, repent, believe, and follow me. And and this is where sometimes all of us, we we can go funny with this. Maybe some of you, you've you've heard about the immigration lottery. The immigration lottery. Are, Are you familiar with that concept? Maybe Maybe you were born in another country, or or maybe your parents were born in another country. And in that country, in your birth country, you experienced adversity, and it was so bad, you wanted to leave your birth country. And and maybe you, you lacked opportunity in your birth country, and you wanted to come to a better country. You wanted to to be in a better country, and the better country was offering a way in. The better country was opening the door through a visa, permission to immigrate to the better country, but not for everyone. It wasn't an opportunity for everyone. Maybe some people would be given a visa, permission to come into the better country. And and in some countries, there might be a hundred people, a hundred people in your own birth country applying for permission, applying for a visa. And for every 100 requests for a visa, only one would be granted. Only one person would be given permission. Only one person would, would get a visa in this immigration lottery. And what if that one person, you applied and you received it? What if that one person was you? You requested permission and you are a winner of the visa lottery. The better country gives you permission, gives you a visa. It's yours. And what would you think if you received that visa and you just sat on it. You just put it in the drawer. And, and five years pass, and ten years pass, and you never took the steps to leave for the better country. That's how some people treat their faith. That's how some people treat the kingdom of God. They, they say, I believe. I believe that Jesus lived for me and that he died for me. I believe, but I'm not following him. You've received the visa, but you never left your birth country. You never moved to the new country. You say that you're a Christian. Has your life now decisively changed? Have you walked away from your old life and started the journey of the new life, of following Christ? What does it mean? What does it mean to walk away from the old life? Well, verses 17 through 19 describe the old self that that we who who say we're Christians, it describes the old self that we must put off. The text brings out two two categorical areas that must change. There's a mindset that must change, and there are moral practices that must change. A mindset and moral practices. The mindset is in verses 17 through 18. And and Paul breaks this mindset down into phrases. It gives you the flavor of the mindset that Christians need to, to put off. Verse 17, he says, 
No longer walk in the futility of your mind. No longer walk in the futility of your mind. When a person comes to Jesus Christ, their whole outlook changes. Their value system, the way they see things, the way they process things, it changes. And and this is what you will hear if you talk to enough Christians. This is what you will hear from people who actually come to know Jesus Christ. They they, they, They will talk like this. They will say, before I became a Christian, before I became a Christian, I was so certain. I was sure of myself. I was confident about my goals, about my outlook. I was confident that my way would give meaning and that my way would give satisfaction in life. And so I pursued wealth. I pursued relationships. I pursued pleasure. I pursued security in this world. And I was wrong. I was wrong. I always found myself dissatisfied. It was it was futile. I would chase it, and I wouldn't get it, and I would be dissatisfied. I would chase it, and I would grab it, and I would still be dissatisfied. It was futile, but I was confident in my futility. But, but why would anyone live like that? Why would there be this insistence on following a, a trajectory that's futile? Why? Because one, one day, you and I we will all die. It could be in 90 years, but it could be tomorrow. Why would you stay on a trajectory, a road that's leading to nowhere? Why, why would you keep living, living for the, the next degree, the next raise, the next thing, the next person? It's like the, the people who say, I thought, I thought if I had a boyfriend, I thought if I, if I, would have, I could have a woman, that would complete me that it would fulfill me, but it didn't. Why? Why keep living like that? The answer that is given here, it's insightful, and it's also painful to admit. We stay in futility. We stay in futility because in our hearts, we're actually prejudiced. We have a prior disposition to reject God. We have a prior disposition to reject God and his life. Verse 18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. This, this is where all of us start. Prejudiced against God. We don't like him. It's, it's almost like we can't help it that we don't like him. If you're someone who's here today and, and you're someone who rejects Christianity, have you ever considered, have you ever considered that you might be categorically prejudiced against God? That, that in spite of, you may say that you, you embrace tolerance, you embrace rationality, the truth is that you lack objectivity. The truth is that you're not impartial. In spite of demanding that other people be objective and rational, you lack objectivity about your own core beliefs. And, and when I say that, Please don't be insulted. I'm not shaking the finger. This is where all of us are born. All of us. All of us. We come into this fallen world siding against God. The writer of these words, the person who wrote these words, he was that way. Paul was prejudiced against God. And and Paul is, is someone who is not intellectually weak. Paul was highly educated in the academies of his day. And the shocking thing is, Paul was also, he was not even anti-religion. 
Paul was just the opposite. He was highly religious, highly observant. He was a Jew of the Jews, but he was prejudiced against Jesus, another Jew. And his predisposition made it impossible for him to rationally, objectively, honestly weigh the truth about Jesus. And that's why Paul, before, before he meets Christ, that's why Paul doesn't just disagree in principle with Christians Paul wants Christians killed. And because of Paul's internal animosity against God, Jesus comes and he confronts Paul and he says, why are you kicking against me? He's saying, why, Paul, do you hate me so much? Now, there's, there's some instruction for us, those of us who are here who, who are Christians. And, and maybe you have someone that you love, but they don't, they don't know Christ. Maybe you have someone, do you love someone who is against Christ? And, and the desire, the longing of your heart is that they would come to know Christ. Well, don't be angry with them. Don't look down on them. Pray for them. Ask God to remove blindness from them, the blindness that you once had and that they still have. Ask God to give them a, a change of heart, to soften their hearts. Maybe stop debating them. Maybe discern when the person, they don't lack reasons. There's no lack of rational arguments. The person needs their resentment removed from their heart. And so there's a mindset that we've got to put off. There are also moral practices to put off. Moral practices to put off if you're a Christian. Verse 19, it says, Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, So the Christian is someone who has been saved by Jesus and who now wants to follow after Jesus. And Jesus is is saying, you you recall these places where he says things like this. He says, I saved you, now go and sin no more. And so verse 22, there there are these moral practices that you, you must now put off. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old person, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. You've got to put these things off, he says. Put off deceitful lusts, verse 19. He says, put off lewdness. He says, put off uncleanness. Now, those terms, they can be general, but they, by and large, have sexual connotations. And so you need to understand, one thing you need to understand is, in that culture, back then, in that place, what was normal? What, what were normal sexual ethics like? Well, back then, in that place, part of normal was older men with boys. That was normal. That was part of what was normal then. And, and if you've read the great Greek thinkers, this was exalted. They, they wrote about it. They systematized this. They, they rationalized it. They consider it to be the highest. Now, you children who are listening to this, I, I don't want you to get lost. I don't want this also, though, to overwhelm you. What do I mean when I use the phrase sexual ethics? You're going to go home, you're going to have lunch, people are going to talk about the sermon. What did you learn in the sermon? And you're going to say, I learned about sexual ethics. What does that mean? Well, here's one simple definition that you can, you can build, work with. Sexual ethics, it's whom you sleep with. Sexual ethics, it's whom you show yourself to. Who you sleep with, who you show yourself to. That's a, that's a simple definition you can work with. And when you follow Christ, you adopt the ethics and the values of a new kingdom. His kingdom. And so can I, can I offer to you a suggestion if you're a parent? If you're a parent, I urge you, proactively, present your children 
with the sexual ethics of God's kingdom. You've got to talk to them about it. Who else is going to talk to them about it? Who else will care about them and and just continue the conversation with them and and help them interpret all the things that they're hearing and they're seeing? You need to proactively present your children the sexual ethics of God's kingdom, that, that God created physical union, nakedness without shame. He created it, and it's fundamental to the good world that he made, Genesis 2, and that he designed it. He designed it for a husband and for a wife and that there's something pure about it. It's not dirty. It's pure. Can, can Genesis 2 be part of your ongoing parenting conversations? The text clearly calls us to put off lewdness, uncleanness, deceitful lusts. Because we now live in this fallen world, our good desires have become distorted. They've become distorted desires. What does that mean? It means that we can't fully trust our hearts. It means that our urges are somewhat untrustworthy. It means your desires, they can't fully define what's really good. And so there are people that you want to sleep with, even though you're not married. There are images or scenes that you want to see on screens, but you shouldn't. Well, what is lust? What is lust? And, and how is it different from good, healthy sexual desire? Well, lust is when a good desire takes control and becomes a demand. Lust is when a good desire takes over and upshifts from being a desire and becomes a demand. Or, or, or lust is when a, a desire, even a, even a good desire, is willing to cross lines. So, for instance, I like figs. I like figs. And I'm amazed at how good fresh figs can be. The, the, the liquid sweetness in a good, fresh fig that is, is plucked directly from a fig tree. Now, the desire and the delight that I have for figs, it's not bad. It's a good desire. But when that desire becomes so strong that I am willing to cross lines... I want the fig so much, I'm willing to steal it from a tree. My good desire has then turned into a lust. And so the word here is saying, put this off. Deny the desire. I'm talking about sexual ethics, but we're also talking about any desire that you may have, any good desire that has become a demand. It could be about drinking. It could be about food. It could be about family. The things that you crave because of the enjoyment that you receive from them, but you find that you have to consume more and more in order to receive less and less return. And then suddenly you're, you're just out of control. It's become a demand. You're a slave to it. The desire has become an idol. Now, we've looked at the need for a new self. Next, let's see the, the despair about our old self, the despair about our old self. If, if you're listening to this and, and you're not a Christian, you are very welcome here as you explore Christianity. And, and I hope what you're hearing me say is this, is, this is something that's universal. This is true to us, to, to people who are church people. We're not saying this is just those outside. This is universal. All of us, all of us have inherited this human condition you could call it of, of disappointment. 
The text in verse 17 talks about this futility, this, this sense of pointlessness. You, you get the degree. You get the master's degree. You get the doctorate. You get the promotion. You, you get ad- admission into the inner circle. And you're still not satisfied. The book of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's this wonderful existential exploration of a man who has everything. He, he looks over his life at everything that he's attained of intellect, of achievement, of position, and every human pleasure that he's explored. And still, he finds himself deeply disappointed. He's dissatisfied. He's wanting more. But he knows when he gets it, it still won't be enough. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? In verse 8, all things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Here's something that we know about human nature, something that we know that's true to all of us as people. You can have nothing in this life. You could have, you could have nothing in your pockets and you could be very unhappy. But you can also have everything in this life and be even more deeply unhappy. There's this, this old Far Side cartoon, and it's, it's absurd because it's these cows, but they're cows who are wealthy. And so you've got these cows sitting in a luxury sitting room. with They're, they're wearing jewelry and bracelet, and one of the cows is holding a cocktail. And, and, and the cow the wealthy cow says, I'm unhappy. I mean, it's absurd, but it's true, isn't it? And, and so there's a sense of futility when, when you start to see this and when you start to experience this. That, that futility, it starts to lead to despair. Verse 19 talks about this, this numbness, numbness, being past feeling. It starts to settle in. The pointlessness, the despair, and, and if, you, if you get to that point where you're numb, when you're just filled with despair, that can lead you to dark places. You can become numb, desensitized, and then you start to destroy yourself. There's this this despair that leads to self-ruin, a despair that can lead into debauchery. And, And for some people, you end up in this deep, this dark place that you never imagined it was possible that you could end up there, and yet, here you are. You go from, from drinking occasionally to being drunk before breakfast. From, from, from going from just glances at forbidden things to swimming in depths of pornography that, that would have disgusted you a year ago. Or it could be relational. It could just be with your relationships. You, you, you move from friendship with a person to a companionship and then it just gets out of control. And, and now you're demanding control over the other person. And you find, this is a toxic relationship. But I'm the toxic person in the relationship. We get to this point where we can repeat our vices until we're past feeling. We become numb to what we've done, numb to what we have become. And this, this quiet despair leads us into darker and deeper waters, a despair that leads to just shameless, reckless living because you just don't care. It can lead to sexual twisting. And, and you, you have this sense that, 
I've ruined myself and I can't stop. I can't get out of it. How do you put this off? How can you put this off? And, and maybe, maybe you sit here and, and you're a Christian and you believed and you determined, yes, I want to follow Jesus. But you find that whatever your area is, you just keep falling back into the mud. Maybe for you, your struggles are public and everyone sees your mess. It's not a secret. But maybe for you, your struggles are secret and you're so filled with, with shame and discouragement about it. And today, maybe even here, you're filled with this, this hopeless despair that you're never going to be free, that you're never going to get out of the mud. Well, let's close with what drives away despair. Verse 20, it contains an, a, it's a, it's a verbal oddity in the Greek, and it's worth noting, verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ. You have not so learned Christ. The oddity is that the text doesn't say, you have not so learned about Christ. It says, you have not so learned Christ. The emphasis there, by by wording it in this peculiar way, it's personal. It's relational. He's saying, you've read the books. You have done the self-study Bible study courses about Christ. You've learned all the material about Christ. But he's saying, but most of all, you've met Christ. Verse 21 ends with this another verbally unique wording. He says, the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. In the person of Jesus, in, when you connect with Jesus, you find truth. You meet a person. You meet a person who meets you. And when you meet him, it wasn't, it wasn't when you had gotten yourself personally pulled together. When you met him, it was when you were falling apart. Think of a person, who is, think of a person who's stuck in a, in a cycle of, of broken marriage after broken marriage. And now she was living with someone to whom she was not married. But she didn't want it to be made public. John 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus came to her. He introduced himself to her and he offered her, he offered her the acceptance and he offered her the soul satisfaction that she had been looking for all her life. She'd been looking for it in men. Jesus came, he was a man, he came to someone who dared to admit that she was a mess and that she was thirsting for water that no man could supply. Five former marriages and now she was with her sixth man. That's got to be a setup for despair, for hopelessness. Despair is the thorn that will keep you away from Jesus. You're sick of yourself, and you've become cynical. And the question that you're asking is, can Christ change me? And more significantly, can Christ satisfy me? We must put off the old self. We must put on the new self. But despair is blocking the way. Despair is dragging you down, defeating you. The gospel, the gospel dispels despair. In the gospel, Jesus is the one who faced despair, a deeper despair than you have ever encountered. He faced the despair of becoming your old self. He faced the despair of becoming everything that you despair about yourself. He never sinned, but he became sin. 
He became your sin so that you could become the righteousness of God in him. And he faced despair so that you could know the face of God's approval and acceptance. Here's the solution to your despair. Jesus died for everything that pollutes you and Jesus lives again. And he rose on the third day and so the charges against you are dropped. And the character transformation, he's begun it in you and he will surely complete it. And so you've been released by him. Released from the prison of your passions. Released from the prison of your pleasures that too long have enslaved you. And Jesus is saying, come out from there. The doors are open. The chains are off. Come on out. And now Jesus is offering you a satisfaction. The water that your soul has always been thirsting for. When all that you've known prior to him is sand. When you turn to him, when you believe, and when you determine to follow him, there's this, this cascade of truth that falls on you. And, and we've got this, this tremendous catalog of theological terms that, that just tries to capture the experience. There's mortification. You put to death the old self. Verse 22, you put off your former conduct, the old person. And, and, and you, you find this, it's a little bit complex. You find that the old self is still there, but it's dying away. The old self, which grows corrupt, he says, He's talking about the remnants of the old stuff. They still remain. They still do things, but they're withering away. They are withering away. If, if you've ever cared for a newborn, a, an infant, there's this thing where their belly button is, and it's, it's the old stub of the cord, the umbilical cord. It's still attached to the belly button, but it's decaying. It's drying out, and it's slowly but surely falling off in time. That's the old self. That's what's happening in the mortification of sin. There's also mortification. There's regeneration. You're born again. You are born again. Something has come over you. Your outlook has changed. You're not prejudiced against God anymore. Verse 24, you put on the new man which was created according to God. What Adam lost, what Adam, Father Adam lost, God is restoring in you. People who meet you now say, something has changed about you. You're different. What happened to you? People who meet you, they they say, you were so anxious all the time, so high strung. Why are you at peace? Or, Or they say, you used to be so mean. How did you start becoming kind? Or, or they may notice, they may say, you were always so grasping, grasping for relationships, or grasping for attention and position, and now you seem so satisfied. What happened to you? You were born again. There's also sanctification. Slowly but surely, God is changing you. It's a long game, but he's doing it. You will stumble, but it will not keep you down. Verse 23, he says, be renewed. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So it's, it's passive. Be renewed. He is renewing you, believer. God is at work in you to will and to do. But it's also active. It's passive and it's active. Verse 24, you put on the new man. You put on the new man. Romans seven twenty-two. in my inner being, I'm delighting in the law of God. And so that means you don't lose heart when you see, when you experience, when you commit the remaining sin. You don't lose heart over it because you know that you're accepted in Christ. It means that you also recognize the incremental changes that the Spirit is achieving in you. You can see it's happening. They may be small steps, but they're still steps. 
But you also have the holy discontentment with the recurrence of sin in your heart. But it doesn't turn into self-loathing because you know God loves you. And his love, his love for you is stronger than death. I'm going to close by quoting a stanza from that well-known hymn. It says, Jesus lives, and by his grace, victory over my passions giving. I will cleanse my heart in ways, ever to his glory living. Me, he raises from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. Let's pray. Lord, you've called us into this wonderful, tumultuous thing. New life, new identity, and the ability to become new people. There are things that we loathe about ourselves that we should loathe. But you are making something in us that we love, the image of Christ. And so, Lord, give encouragement. Lift us out of despair and hopelessness. Free us from the sins that gnaw on us, that have attached themselves to us, enable us to shake them off. And Lord, for those who, who may harbor a hardness against you, would you give them a taste, a smell, a scent of the savor of the beauty of Jesus Christ? We ask this in his name. Amen.